This episode of Bibliophiles is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Adam Andrews with you once again. It's time for another episode of Bibliophiles from the Center for Lit Podcast Network. I'm joined, as always, by the rest of the glorious, intelligent, mighty members of the Center for Lit crew, my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Hi. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Hello. Welcome, you guys. Glad to be with you once again. Uh, I want to dive right into our topic for the day because... I turned 50 years old this week. Woo! Yep. And there his was beard. His beard, ladies and gentlemen, there's some gray in it. It's starting to look really, really good. There was great hue, also cry, throughout also the cry. Center for Lit world. Thanks in part to my lovely daughter-in-law sending out an Instagram notice uh, to the Center for Lit people telling them to send me a personal email. And she did it on Instagram because she wanted to make it a secret. And, and she, she knows, knows that, that I cannot log into our Instagram. Yeah. Nor it's not can just that I check it. Like it. You don't know where it is. <laughs> I had this conversation with Missy. I know it was Emily. I'm getting emails from cus- personal private emails from customers. I know Emily must have announced it somehow. And Missy said, well, let's check Facebook. And that's where the search ended. We didn't see anything <laughs> on Facebook. And so we threw up our hands and said it must have been an elf. But then you confronted Emily and you said... I know it was you. How did this happen? And she said, I did it on Instagram. And you said, what's an Instagram? <laughs> Something like I that. I didn't say he that. Did. I said, no, oh, yeah, no, Instagram. I forget that. about that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the reason I announced my 50th birthday is not to get more personal emails from Bibliophiles listeners, but to call attention to the fact that we are celebrating another 50th anniversary with this episode of Bibliophiles. And that is the 1969 publication of Honey for a Child's Heart by Gladys Hunt. Honey for a Child's Heart by Gladys Hunt, now celebrating its 50th anniversary. It's been through at least three editions since then, and it's a book that is near and dear to my heart and Missy's heart, and therefore to the heart of Center for Lit. Uh, A lot of Bibliophiles listeners may know it already, especially if they've ever been in the situation of having to put together a book list for their own children, either in the homeschool environment or just the family reading environment or navigate a library, a children's section, looking for the best titles to choose, uh, looking for uh, great books and classics at the juvenile reading level. Uh, This has been one of the most powerful tools we have uh, ever wielded in those areas. And we wanted to take a moment, presented by the occasion of the 50th anniversary of this book, to talk about its um, usefulness, to talk about its power and its profundity, 
and maybe give um, our listeners a little tour of it as by way of re- recommending it to them if they've never heard it before. Uh, it's one of those, I think that it's a classic in its own genre and in its own right and would do all of us good to uh, think about some of the things it takes up. So I thought we would. Any objections? No objections from me. This book was like my best friend, um, like an older woman coming alongside of me when I was having kids and getting started in homeschooling and reading aloud with them, taking small toddlers to the library and having this very limited window of time <laughs> to find really quality books to take home and read to them. You know, uh, this, this was like a Bible to me. I just carried it under my arm, cracked it open. I'd, I'd set the kids down in front of something, give them a book or two to look at. And then I knew I, it was like, set your stopwatch, go. You've got about five <laughs> minutes. Go, go, go. Before the kids look up and wonder where you went. Yeah. And so I would look at Megan and Megan starts screaming. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, there was the, it, it was fine for a minute. Everybody was engaged and then the wheels would start falling off that wagon. You know, so. I'd have to collect those books and take them, you know, take them up there and get them all checked out while you guys were still happy and then move on. So um, I just cracked this book open and she had lists of books that were appropriate for the different stages of growth and development. And, you know, once you knew some authors, it was much easier to navigate the shelves yourself. So I really appreciate what this woman did. The um, Just for those of you listeners who have never seen the book before, I want to give you a quick uh, summary of the, kind of the format. The, the last half of the book is an annotated bibliography, and it takes, um, it takes books by author and by title and by subject matter and gives a, uh, a quick summary of great titles for kids of all ages. Um, if you are following Gladys Hunt, what you have is her kind of stamp or seal of approval on this list of children's books. I didn't count them, but it's pages and pages and pages, several hundred titles uh, for young readers, wouldn't you say, Missy? Yeah, yeah, and she's really careful about not putting an age on the the actual books. She says that good books are ageless, that you should be able to read um, the book no matter what your age is. I mean, age appropriateness, obviously, you know, the the toddler's not going to be reading War and Peace or anything like that. There's a minimum age, but not yes, a maximum. Yes, exactly. Age. So she divides it into early readers versus middlers versus you know teen and adult books. And um, as far as the book list goes, she actually says in this book that a book list is as good as the person who compiled it. So we are all thankful for Gladys Hunt, who mm. is this wonderful woman, um, a Christian lady. She worked with InterVarsity Press. Um, at least in a, in a volunteer status, uh, a staff. She was a staff leader, I, I believe, and um, helped out at university retreats up at Cedar Campus, where where you and I went a couple of times as students in Hillstead Northern College. Michigan. Mm-hmm, in Northern Michigan, um, she published over twenty books. Um, I understand, and uh, I haven't read all of them, but she did. After Honey for a Child's Heart became so well-known and was so well-received, she created some more books of like kind, Honey for a Teen's Heart, Honey for a Woman's Heart. I know those titles at least. Um, Lots of book lists. This woman loved the written word. She had some great ideas about why we read and how to read, um, what's worthy of our attention, and shared also some concerns about things she saw on the horizon that distract families from building a culture with books in their home. And this was really the thing she was after. She wanted to help families build cultures 
in their homes around written words and shared reading experiences. I want to jump in here before you get in too much into describing that part of the book, because I was talking about the general structure and the last half of the book is that bibliography that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, She entitles it books. Your children should have the opportunity to enjoy. Which I think yeah. is an odd title for a bibliography, but she, she makes the point in the in the first half of the book where she sort of lays out her philosophy that to be too heavy-handed in constructing a book list mm-hmm. uh, sort of defeats the purpose because the purpose of a great book list is to invite uh, children and students to taste and see, to taste the honey, as it were, mm-hmm. of great literature and choose which ones suit them best and to provide kind of a smorgasbord of opportunity. So she compiles this list and names it books your children should have the opportunity to enjoy. Almost like um, people your your children have op- should have opportunity to meet. Right, right. And then she does divide it up a little bit c- according to age. There's a section called Good Reading 1, Preschoolers through Grade 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, good Reading 2 is Grades 4, 5, and 6 or something like that. And then there's Good Reading for Teens and Mature Readers. So it's, it's necessary loosely, to does, loosely organized around around grade levels. But she does say in the the first portion of the book that she hesitates to put an age on a book because reading levels vary by the ability of the student. And a good book, um, well, you never get done reading it. Right. So uh, I'm coming in cold here. I've never read this book. And um, based on what you just said, it sounds like she has different reading methodologies for each age level. Is that right? Like a different approach to, you said good reading for X, Y, and Z. So is it different? How does it compare to us? To the Center for Lit approach, you mean? Mm Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Well, actually, I think he meant good reading for these kids, as in here are some great titles for these books. Yeah, for these, these age groups or for these stages of development. She doesn't talk about how that process looks she does very yeah briefly. she does actually yes she does she um she talks about three questions and three elements which open up any text the first being fact what does it say the second interpretation what does it mean and the third application what does it mean to me which is mm. um you know it's very similar to the way that we approach reading um you know first we want to know what is the author saying and then what does he mean by these things that he's saying? And then after we've understood him, what do we think about what he said? Yeah. And she also even gets into the weeds a little bit more in terms of the kinds of structural analysis that we're always talking about mm-hmm. at Center for Lit. She talks about the, the author's main idea. His what theme. is he trying to say? And she says, we call this the theme. And a weak theme results in a flabby story. In the interest of trying to help you identify a good work of literature... She talks about the elements that go into a good one. She mentions theme. She says, um, plot plot is the design of the idea. Mm -hmm. Good plots grow out of strong themes. And the the plot doesn't just answer the question, what happens next? But why does this next thing happen, given the last thing that happened? So it addresses characters' motives. Right. And she talks about characterization. And and she, she summarizes a definition of a good book with sort of a combination of all of those things. And she says this, the quality of the idea, the skill of the plot, the depth of the characterization, and the distinctive style of the author. That's the best I can do by way of defining a good book. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, after I read that again, after all these years, I thought, not sure that's been better defined since 1969. That no, is a really no. sturdy definition. I, I like that she talks about um, good books 
um, not only standing the test of time, but having a permanent worthwhileness and being the kind of book that can be read by all ages and that inspires, she says, a reader's inner life, drawing out from them all that is noble. So in some way, a good book strikes a chord in their hearts that resonates with truth. And she sees truth with a, with a small T as opposed to a capital T. She's a Christian. She understands Christianity to be the capital T truth. But she says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So not every good book is about Jesus, she says. There are good books that are about the goodness, um, the virtue, the truth, and the beauty that's built into God's world that aren't specifically didactically about Christianity, and she wants her children to be able to feast on those as well. And by the way, I should mention that this um, this discussion of what's a good book, how to find one, how to organize them and fit them into your life sort of comprises the first half of Honey for a Child's Heart, and then she goes on to give examples in that bibliography, which is the second half. So it's kind of a neat arrangement of the material. She says, any good book can be used by God in a child's development for a good book has genuine spiritual substance. Okay, but that kind of sets an alarm off in my head because that makes me think that she thinks reading is about creating little virtue nuggets. Not at all. No. <laughs> little no. virtue nuggets. Are the nuggets the are the nuggets the aphorisms there or the or are the nuggets the children? Please say the children. I meant the children. Okay. That's <laughs> You're good. hilarious. Virtue nuggets. No, this is how she said it. And I like her language here. She says that that introducing children to goods good books to good reading is about furnishing their spirit furnishing isn't that a great idea you're furnishing yeah. their spirit you're awakening their imagination she does see that uh, it's an opportunity to impart values and um, train their character in a sense that is awaken their sensibilities to what's good and what's true and what's beautiful but i don't think she would go on to say that um them coming to to um to acknowledge what's good makes them good. Yeah, so I like that. That's uh, a good distinction. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's really interesting. I I um I came to this book again, hadn't read it in many years, and I came to it again um, from the context of conversations that are current in the in the the 2010s about things like the moral imagination and the role in literature in inculcating um, Christian character and virtue in students, and some of the fine distinctions that we are making in our current conversations about that topic, some of the vocabulary, the technical vocabulary that we're using, um, is completely absent from Gladys Hunt's treatment of the very same issues. And I, I had the experience this time, and back me up on this, Missy, if you had the same one, but I had the experience of being set free a little bit by hearing a conversation about these topics without all of that vocabulary, that made me go, oh yeah, I I don't see the problem anymore. There's not there's not much of an argument with some of the th with the way she puts it. Of no. course, of course, a a powerful literary artistic treatment of courage and loyalty awakens a sensibility in a young reader and inclines his heart towards courage and loyalty. It can hardly be denied, and it, 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 she puts it in a very compelling way. Would would you agree with that, Missy? Oh, absolutely. But but also, doesn't she draw a little distinction between what what Emily just said between the teasing of a of a desire for courage and loyalty and actually inculcating courage and loyalty bodily and directly into 
the heart. It seems like there was a distinction that was implicit well, in her treatment. She she's really um, outspoken about what a good book is, and she she distinguishes between the kind of book that demonstrates virtue um, through characterization and story, as opposed to a very didactic treatment yeah. that that moralizes. Right. You know, and I think sometimes the the moral imagination crowd goes towards that didactic kind of an idea um, that in some way we're going to use literature as opposed to absorbing literature in such a way as to awaken our spirits. It's we're going to teach the child and, and um, create a moral person by exposing them to literature where there's a virtuous person in it. Somehow by re- reading Elsie Dinsmore, our daughters are going to, going to become good girls. But she says, on the other hand, kids are a lot smarter than that. She says it several times. She says, Yeah, she says those are thin. Yeah, those kids are thin can stories. tell <laughs> what they are. What She says kids are very intelligent readers. They've got a sense about them because they're human beings, she implies. And they know the difference between having something demonstrated and having something... Lessened or preached. Yeah, and she kind of goes, she, she resonates, it resonates with George MacDonald, which he said. George MacDonald said that the beauty of story is that it gets in through the heart, whereas a sermon um, gets in through the head. It, it appeals to the intellect, right? A story actually appeals first to the heart because when you read story, you're introduced, the story's largely about people, right? It centers on characters rather than. Um, rather than problems. It's it's not that they don't have a problem. Obviously, there's a conflict at the bottom of every story. But the reason we're even interested in the conflict is because there's an an intriguing, absorbing, um, engaging character. And as we get to know them, we come to care for them if, if the author has any skill at all. And we know them, in a sense. And we go along with them through the plot and experience what they experience together with them, their heartache, their confusion, their sin, their redemption, all of those things come alive to us. And so we experience the thematic content that the author is delivering to us with our hearts and then only secondarily come to understand those things with our heads, right? This is, this is how it's different from a sermon. Emily, you had a comment. Go. Well, I was just thinking that there's, you were kind of talking about two different things. There's the story itself and whether or not it's flat, like Elsie Dinsmore. But then there's also the treatment of a story that isn't. Like, you can distinguish between the stories that are are good on the basis of the moral imagination or whatever. But then there's also the process by which you read it. And um, I really liked what you said about teaching a child to understand what is good is not the same thing as making them good. And I think that when it comes to a story that is rich and full, like you're talking about um, the way that you approach it afterwards to, to understand it with your head, which I think is, I would think we would all say an important step in the process oh, yes. mm-hmm. of, of digesting a book. Um, uh, I don't know. I just, I think that's equally important to talk about. You don't want to hand someone uh, Ian was holding up the secret garden a second ago. Cause he taught it earlier. You don't want to hand someone the secret garden and, and expect them to come out of the other end a more virtuous person. Um, right. But I, ho- I would in hope. In the very narrow sense of that word. Right. Yeah, but I would hope that after um, walking around with those characters, they would um, admire goodness. And actually, I think Gladys Hunt implies that we don't, we don't only hope that they would admire goodness. We're sure that they will. Yes. 
because the human heart has a, a particular shape and it responds to a compelling demonstration of human goodness. It responds positively to, and that's kind of what she means when she says kids are perceptive. Mm-hmm. She they're also, sensitive. Yeah, they're sensitive. And also they are creatures in the image of God. And so there's a, there's an innate ability to respond to goodness when they, when it's demonstrated to them. So does that mean that it actually is a bad thing to dissect a book or whatever? Oh, that's a good question. Depends on what you mean by that. that. That's a good question. And it's another... Well, I intentionally used a bad word right, to kind right. of express what I meant. Um, right. she well, let me, I, let me jump in on this say if so, you don't actually, mind. I have a quote oh, here if, okay, if, yeah. unless you, unless you want to talk first. No, no, please. Okay. Um, she actually said that these questions that we mentioned earlier, those three questions, the fact, the interpretation, and the application, allow the student or the, the child to um, have the joy of discovery through conversations around good books. This is what she was trying to foster, or the same kinds of conversations that we're on about at Center for Lit. She says, quote, it's exciting to see how this method can become ingrained in a child's thought pattern and how this can enable him to take apart a piece of literature. So there it is, to take apart a piece of literature and comprehend what it is really saying. So not deconstruct the literature, but understand the literature. Children learn to listen, to isolate key ideas, to contrast and compare, and to come up with the heart of the text with the delight of a skin diver seeking a treasure on the ocean floor. And she says that that the parent or the educator who's leading them in these conversations are influencers of ideas who furnish the mind with what is true, in that sense. This is exactly... um what an example of what I was saying a minute ago that that if you extract the real issue from all of the vocabulary and assumptions of our current conversations about it, what you get is a um, an even-handed treatment of both sides of that issue. Yeah, I think so. Uh, on the one hand, she emphasizes plot and characterization and theme and setting as different components or as the the various aspects of it that Missy just quoted. Um, and so you do have to dissect a little bit and understand in order to get at the kernel of things. On the other hand, it is the heart that responds to these things. Yeah, she wouldn't say dissect. She would say converse. We have to talk mm-hmm. about these things. Good, good literature fosters good conversation. And it's these conversations that she says create a culture in a home. Um, she talks, I loved her section about reading aloud because for her, reading aloud is sharing books together. And she says that the joy of this is that it creates um, kind of pivotal touchstone moments where the family has met the same people, gone through the same trauma, experienced the same deliverance or whatever throughout the course of these narratives. And they come back to these things, their, their family idiom is furnished with, with the landscape of these novels and the content, the thematic content, the, the linguistic content um, of these novels, and they can reference them. It creates a kind of intimacy in the family, in their language, in the way that they communicate with one another um, that's really singular and important, I think, um, not just in the, in, the, in the literary classroom, but relationally speaking, it gives them a way to communicate with one another about the things that they're experiencing themselves and the things that they see around them. Mm. Just going back one second to that wonderful um, combination of the two sides of that debate that we're always on about the 
between structural analysis slash dissection and holistic, you know, uh, taking in of a story in sort of a spiritual way. The, the, the 1969 version in Gladys Hunt's mouth is such a great, such a great combination of that. She talks about the, um, the holistic side, the spiritual side in a description of C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. And I, this is the best thing I've ever read on what we would call now the moral imagination and the great literature's role in fostering it. She says, in a scene from The Magician's Nephew, Lewis's characters explore dimensions of love and temptation and loyalty. Aslan, the golden-maned lion, who is no ordinary lion, sends Diggory and Polly, two children, to a faraway garden to get an apple to plant in the land of Narnia as a tree of protection. When they finally arrive at the place and Diggory gets into the garden to pick the golden apple, he's confronted by a witch. She tells him that the apple gives youth and health to whoever eats it, and she encourages him to take one for himself and eat it. He's hungry, isn't he? Diggory refuses, but he does remember his mother, who is dying, and the witch urges him to take the apple to her. Aslan need never know. Quote, soon she will be quite well again. All will be well again. Your home will be happy again. Diggory gasps as if he has been hurt and puts his hand to his head, for he knows that the most terrible choice lies before him. The witch also suggests he leave Polly behind. At once, all that the witch has been saying to him sounds false and hollow. He remembers the shining tears in Aslan's eyes and the promise he had made to Aslan. He returns to Narnia and walks straight up to Aslan, hands him the apple, and says, I brought you the apple you wanted, sir. Well done, says Aslan, in a voice that makes the earth shake. And then listen to this. This is Gladys Hunt. Suddenly, anything other than obedience and loyalty seems incredibly stupid. <laughs> we have never read this story without feeling a profound longing to keep our promises and do what is right. Not because we've heard a sermon, but because of the action and decisions of the characters in a story. And because the, the weight, there's, there's weight and consequence in that moment in the story that the, the reader is made to feel, not just to, you know, to, in, to understand with their intellect, but they yeah. feel it with their hearts. They feel the conundrum and it, it's human. It's very human. And they, they relate to it, um, if not in its particulars, in its sense. And so the, the lesson goes home. Yeah. You know? But what I like about what you're saying, or, and what it seems like what she's saying, is that the literature hasn't failed if the reader doesn't then go and be obedient. No, mm. because... Well, hang on a second, Missy. What do you mean by that, Emily? I'm not sure I understand that question. That, um, that a reader can feel all of those desires, the desire to be obedient and to receive a, a job well done, but close the book, walk away, and immediately be disobedient and just because the reader walks away and is disobedient doesn't mean that the literature has failed because the spirit has awakened i see and and, and they'll know their disobedience right exactly yeah no i think you're right i think that that uh that gladys hunt's treatment doesn't put that kind of burden on the literature uh not to not to create righteous virtuous people but that it has the power to awaken a sense for and a taste for righteousness and virtue. Mm -hmm. I think there's an important distinction there. 
Yeah, I, I also appreciated her treatment of um, fantasy literature. And I was just going to say that. I was hoping you'd bring that up. read just a little of Lewis there. Yeah. I loved her idea that when we put fantasy into the hands of kids, it introduces them to, quote-unquote, levels of meaning and gives them the sense that there is something unseen that lies beneath the scene. Um, she points out that in Greek, fantasy means to make visible, which I thought was really interesting. Um, because if you think about it, then fantasy literature has the capability of priming the heart to receive and the mind to understand and believe um, in an unseen truth, right? It gets beyond materialism as a philosophical construct and suggests that there is a supernatural element that lies beneath matter, which is really valuable. I appreciate that very much. Did you... Um did you notice as you were going through this again, Missy, that it sounded like it sounded like she was writing in a different time when, in that chapter on fantasy and realism, that the concerns she seemed to be um, uh, addressing were the concerns of a bygone era. It, it seemed like some of the parents that she may have been writing, may have had in mind as she wrote, were concerned that children would confuse elements of fantasy with reality. Yeah, that they didn't know the difference between the unreal and the real, or that they would mistake um, the dragons and the unicorns for things that truly were. Right. So she says at one point, uh, look, children can tell the difference between unicorns and beef cows. Yeah, they're all about make-believe, and they know that make-believe is just that. They do it all day long. Um, she's more concerned, actually, about reality books, she calls them, which, um, which are really popular today, the, the kind of reality books. Um, she, would, she would point to YA fiction, I think, in large part. Um, she said these are, the, these are books that, quote, suggest a crusading awareness era has dumped all our societal problems into children's books. These are books with a message often with inconsequential plots and characters, thinly disguised moralisms, which editors have so disdained in a more puritanical age, except that the books in question are hardly puritanical. Their moralisms derive from the contemporary emphasis that we must all be understanding and non-condemning. They demean mm. human potential. And, you know, these kinds of books, I think, are the same kinds of books that Megan Cox Gurdon writes about and, and warns parents against that are in, in um, they say, in an effort to deal with contemporary issues, um, taking the, the minority issues, and I don't mean minority in the political sense of the word, I mean the marginal issues that affect the very, very few of the kids that might be reading and make them central issues and highlight then um, the dark portion of life as opposed to um, exalting hope and light and filling the children's heart with those things. Um, it, she says, good books deal with reality, but not in the burdened way of contemporary writers. I liked that, the burdened way. Because it does feel sometimes like um, a lot of, of authors today use the genre of children's fiction to, to push their political and social agendas. They understand that children's minds are very supple and their hearts are very open and they think if we can grab them now, we'll have them for good. And so they, you know, they paste up this kind of thin plot over their political agenda and they call it children's literature. Um, 
And many times those, those actual agendas are full of um, content that we don't necessarily want our children to have to carry around quite yet. Well, not just that, but uh, it seems to me that, and, and that doesn't happen just in children's fiction. It happens in a lot of current adult fiction as oh, well. Yeah, absolutely. And their emphasis, they, they claim with their words that the goal is to get people to be more empathetic towards the plight of people who are suffering. And I think that's a, a noble plight and one, or a noble uh, goal and one that we would agree is actually one of the effects of good literature, but the result is is not the, what they're saying with their words. Instead, they're very condemnatory towards the reader. It, it almost is like they assume that the reader has some kind of prejudice. Yeah, or, it needs to be yes. it needs to be lectured. Right, yeah. and so in that way, the the author is not being sympathetic or open hearted towards the reader mm -hmm. um, because the. Uh, at, do you understand? What yes, I do. In I fact, in fact, exactly in fact, right. I want to read a quote from Gladys Hunt that I think gets right at this. I think the the phrase that Missy quoted a minute ago uh, embodies what you're talking about. The, the themes of, of quote unquote realism that she's on about debase human experience. Mm -hmm. They're expressed in such a way that they debase human experience or in the way that you just put it, don't give the reader credit for being able to think clearly about the themes that are being presented, but take him to task instead for being prejudiced or insensitive or in somehow need, some way needing to be brought along. Is that, mm -hmm. is that fair, Emily? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they assume uh, that we need to be lectured on these details instead of that in the great literature, the universals in something like a Huckleberry Finn, right? The universal truths about human nature work their way into our heart and trickle down to the yes. details of life. Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, she says, mm -hmm. um, good literature reveals how to be a human being and what the possibilities of life are. It offers hope. Mm -hmm. Good literature has always dealt with truth, but not in a way that makes man less. Good literature shows man how to be more. I like that. Um, you know, by appealing to what is good and what is true, what is lovely, and by inspiring the soul to consider those things, um, it elevates them in some way and causes us to acknowledge those things ourselves. And where we see a shortfall, uh, to compare and contrast, as she says, and where we see shortfall where that's concerned sometimes challenges us as readers, with uh, challenges our own values, our own understanding of things. So far, the, um, our reactions to this 50-year-old book on picking books, picking literature for young readers, has been fairly positive to the extent that we're making Gladys Hunt sound like a prophet sound like someone who was before I'll tell her you, time. I'm not done saying that yet. I mean, she said some things right. about, um, about she had some concern over the negative influence um, of media, which at the time in 1969 was predominantly just television, right? I was going to softball this to you, love. I was going to say, are there well, other I don't need ways? Your help. I, I got yeah. it. I tossed it up for myself. <laughs> that seems <laughs> clear. This is self-pitch. Go, Missy, this is go. Self -pitch. I, I actually thought that this was like prophetic, 
in a sense, as I was reading this. Now, I had to keep reminding myself, she was writing this in 1969, um, pre-internet, pre-smartphone, um, smartphone or video games or anything like the kind of access that we have. I mean, she was looking at television in the days where, you know, it was analog or whatever it is. You, you're you're no, turning a little dial. There. You're just turning a little dial, you know, and there may be <laughs> six channels if you can get them all. I, I remember when I was a kid, I could get like three, maybe, if I was lucky. And she was concerned about um, the way that it affected a child's imagination. She said there are some really good shows, and those good shows are worthy. But then there are a lot that just actually are distractions um, that keep families from conversing with one another. And I thought this was so interesting because I read a lot about the effects of the media on young minds. And everybody, everybody's up in arms about how our computers and scre- how screen time going to affect this generation that's coming up now. And we don't know yet. We're still measuring and you know seeing how this is going to affect everybody. But there are a lot of people that are alarmed at um, the effects of young people having screens in their hands. And if they're ever going to be able to interact with ideas, literature, um, and all that sort of thing. She is more concerned, um, not that that isn't a concern for her, but she's more concerned with the hours that she says are stolen by TV from relating to other people. She's concerned about um, the distraction it is for families from conversation with each other about things that actually matter. And listen to this quote. She says, people, um, and she's talking about people that spent a lot of time watching television in 1969, become spectators, detached from their own lives, almost refusing to take responsibility for living. And she said that psychologists at that time who were measuring the effects of television on children uh, saw that that children that watched a lot of television dealt with tension, anxiety, restlessness, and they were generally suspicious and had very short attention spans. Hmm. And they weren't interested in books or in conversation because they found actual life rather dull in comparison to what they saw on the television. And she said all of these things work together to destroy the average family's exchange of views. And the the reason she was even talking about this is because this is what she was on about in her book. She really wanted to help families develop cultures so that they could communicate the things that matter, about the things that matter with one another. Um, She said, this ability to think together about ideas is what parents ought to be fostering with their children. Which, and what you just said, is totally a legitimate thing to do with television. It oh, just depends absolutely. on the content. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, also uh, prefiguring by 50 years, another current conversation that is popular and ongoing in the family-oriented, homeschool-oriented, classical education-oriented reading movement, right? She says 50 years ago, you know, families should really read out loud together because it fosters all kinds of communication about ideas. But in such a way, I just want to reiterate, in such a way that none of the, um, that none of the divisive vocabulary is in vogue yet. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask that question. Since it was 50 years ago, you kind of, you've said that a lot, but are there other reasons that someone would want to go pick this book up um, from 50 years ago instead of reading the current literature on this issue? 
that's a really good question, and I hope that we will uh, we will take a look at some of the other books in this kind of in this kind of genre, you know, in future bibliophiles episodes. Um, but I, at, on another reading of Honey for a Child's Heart, I am I am as as convinced as ever that I ought to be making this recommendation, you know, out on the convention trail when parents ask me what should we where should we start building a book list. I still think this is a great place to start, not only because the book list itself is filled with timeless classics that are no worse for being 50 years older than they were in 1969, but also because the first half of this is a really um, elegant statement of a sturdy philosophy of reading and a philosophy of literature. A philosophy of education. And even a, a really a philosophy of education that I think the same thing about. It. It's no worse for being 50 years older. Mm-hmm. She, she, would, um, she would go on about words. I loved her appreciation, her elevation of the written word. She saw parents as having an opportunity to influence their children and to create not just a climate, but almost like a world for their children um, by carefully curating the kind of, the kind of literature Literary that their kids were reading. characters that they yeah, have as friends. That's right. Just, just like, you know, parents are really careful, um, if they're wise, they're really careful about the company their kids keep. She saw books as opportunities to interact with people, uh, not just in a book discussion group, but actually the characters become friends to them. The book becomes a friend. And so she wanted to curate the friends in her children's lives, fill their lives with characters that would be companions and resources and just a joy to them as they grew. And in that way, she kind of saw parents as co-creators of worlds. And I think this is interesting. It reminds me, Ian, of something you talk about in a, in a convention lecture about Tolkien, right? That he understood the work of the fantasy fiction writer as being a, a co-creator of worlds, like God, functioning in, the, in their image as, as God's children by co-creating worlds. And I see her saying the same thing about parents as they're curating these different books um, for their kids. They're creating a, like a, a microcosm in their household that's full of the rich goodness and truth and beauty that's resident in good fiction, mm-hmm. right? And she says, we want to surround our kids with those things so that they, they gain an appetite for those things, not because they themselves are necessarily going to walk away from having read a book that elevates the good, um, all of a sudden being good people, because we know that no one is good but God, but because loving what is good is good for us, whether we ourselves are ever able to rise to become goodness or not. That's a, that embodies that distinction we were talking about a minute ago really well. Yeah. She says, we want to be joyful dispensers of honey. And by honey, she means the rich goodness of life that is contained in books. There it is. That's as ringing an endorsement of a 50-year-old book as you're ever going to hear, I think. Would you, Missy, after this, uh, uh, after giving us your thoughts on this one, would you as, as thoroughly, as enthusiastically recommend it now that you've read it again? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many, how many copies of Honey for a Child's Heart have we gone through in our family? I think I've burned through three or four, um, like worn the covers off and the pages fell out. So I had to buy a new one. Um, that was my next question. How many have I personally ruined? 
Um, I don't know that you ever <laughs> ruined any, but yeah, I, I used up several copies just, you know, hauling it back and forth to the library as you kids were growing up. But this book was really a blessing to me. Didn't we take it to a library in the very early stages and uh, decide which books to take home based on whether or not they were listed? Yeah, that's what I was saying. I, I took it to the library with me like a Bible. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of our, our conversation, I was, I was passing that along, I think. Yeah. We recommend that to parents, too, who are just getting started in the children's literature world. It's great to have, as you said, a, a somebody who's been before, who is a good book list maker whom you trust, and take their word for it for a while until you get your own feet under you. And even all these years later, we couldn't recommend Gladys Hunt highly enough. Well, good. Well, I hope that is, I hope that's encouraging. I hope that sends uh, some parents and teachers and readers to this great classic 50 years on. And I hope that you uh, are as, are as uh, happy to celebrate the 50th anniversary of this great book as we are. And you can wish me happy birthday as well as you listen to this episode. I'm enjoying my 51st year already. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Man, in that Instagram post, I went on and on about how humble you are and how oh, much dang you it. won't tell anyone about your birthday. <laughs> Actually, those of you, those of you bibliophiles listeners who got my personal email response, one of the lines I was putting in is, may God bless you in my 51st year. <laughs> in my 51st year. <laughs> I said that to more than one person. That is rich. <laughs> It was tongue-in-cheek, uh, And I there's promise. a little honey for your heart. <laughs> if you guys got that note, print it out and keep it. It'll be worth something someday. <laughs> uh, it's uh, 51 AD in the... It's 51 AD. Year of Adam. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, let there be a moratorium on mentioning the subject ever again, starting now. Uh, that was great. Well, thank you guys for coming. Th appreciate you being here, Center for Lit Crew. All you listeners, thank you for listening. Please do check out the other episodes of Bibliophiles on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts. Give us a rate if you think about it. And also swing by the website and check out what else we're doing for readers and teachers of all stripes at centerforlit.com. Thanks for being here, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.